Hello, and welcome to Kindred Spirits Book Club. I'm Kelly Gurner, and I'm joined by my co-host, Regan Duffy, for our sixth episode. Hello, everyone. Regan, who is our kindred spirit for today's discussion? Well, Kelly, today we will be talking about Matthew Cuthbert, the third tentpole relationship in Anne's life at Green Gables. Marilla is the structure. Diana is the companion, and Matthew is uncomplicated, unconditional love. Matthew is the model of gentle masculinity, and his guiding theme is acceptance and love that gives Anne the room to blossom and heal from years of abandonment. Our quote of the episode marks the moment that Anne's life changes forever. Matthew Cuthbert, you don't mean to say you think we ought to keep her? Marilla's astonishment could not have been greater if Matthew had expressed a predilection for standing on his head. Well, now, no, I suppose not, not exactly, stammered Matthew, uncomfortably driven into a corner for his precise meaning. I, I suppose we, we could hardly be expected to keep her. Should say not, what good would she be to us? We might be some good to her said Matthew, suddenly and unexpectedly. Matthew's sudden and unexpected comment is a central theme in Anne of Green Gables. We might be able to do good for someone else. Matthew, who can extend this generosity to Anne, at this point in the story, essentially a stranger to him, is the ultimate expression of this moral goodness. So for today's story club, we are going to pay more attention to Matthew than he'd ever be comfortable with and explore explore all how Matthew's gentleness and capacity for unconditional love quietly shapes Anne's life and his own. Matthew is the first person to encounter Anne at the train station. He's flummoxed by her and being unable to tell her then that he was expecting a boy, he takes her home without a word. Anne quickly charms Matthew on the drive home. He's shy and reticent, particularly around women and girls. The book tells us that, quote, Matthew dreaded all women except Marilla and Mrs. Rachel. He had an uncomfortable feeling that the mysterious creatures were secretly laughing at him. But Anne doesn't give Matthew a moment to be shy or awkward. Her chatter is fanciful and interesting, and Matthew is surprised to find he was enjoying her company. Quote, like most quiet folks, he liked talkative people when they were willing to do the talking themselves and did not expect him to keep up his end of it. But he had never expected to enjoy the society of a little girl. Women were bad enough in all conscience, but little girls were worse. He detested the way they had of sidling past him timidly with sidewise glances as if they expected him to gobble them up at a mouthful if they ventured to say a word. Reagan, that quote is such a helpful framework to understand a facet of Matthew's character that, to be honest, has long been a source of confusion for me. We know that Matthew is very shy and mistrustful of girls and women, and to be honest, I always felt that that was a little unfair of him. But then that quote explains that Matthew, quote, detests that girls and women don't trust him not to gobble them up at a mouthful. Matthew knows that he's gentle and would never hurt anyone. And he's distressed to know that girls and women see him as a potential threat or someone they need to be wary of. For someone as mild and reserved as Matthew is, that is pretty insulting. It's all really just a great big misunderstanding, right? (laughs) The girls and women (laughs) of Avonlea only know this like strange taciturn farmer who can't make eye contact, so they assume the worst. While Matthew is over here feeling judged by them and assuming the worst in turn. You can really see what a breath of fresh air Anne was for him. Anne, who just struck up a conversation without any hesitation or nervousness. I mean, it's really no wonder that he fell under her spell. Yes, quite immediately, too. Matthew quite literally saves Anne. It it is at his insistence that Marilla considers keeping Anne, even though it's not the practical choice. Matthew is surprising in his softness and tenderness. When he thinks of having to tell Anne that she isn't what they wanted, he thinks, quote, 
When he thought of that rapt light being quenched in her eyes, he had an uncomfortable feeling that he was going to assist at a murdering something, much the same feeling that came over him when he had to kill a lamb or a calf or any other innocent little creature. It makes me think a little bit of the moment my husband first really felt that surge of deep fatherly protection for our daughter. Okay. Alice was just a few months old and, you know, it's sometimes it's hard, I think, for new dads to bond with brand new babies. Yeah, I've heard that. So, I mean, he loved her, but still feeling like, is she mine? Exactly. When they're new, it's like all mom all the time, right? Yeah. So Alice was just a few months old and we were at my cousin's wedding and Steve took Alice off to a side room because the the noise was bothering her. Mm -hmm. And she had just drowsed off on his shoulder when someone dropped a tray of glasses in the room, startling her awake. And she just burst into wails. Oh, baby. I know. (laughs) And Steve always said he felt this, all of a sudden felt this like powerful rage rise up in him that someone had hurt his daughter inadvertently, of course, and not actually hurting her. And that's when all of a sudden he felt this really clear connection to her, to his role as her protector and guide. Oh, wow. Yeah. It really felt like that was the moment he snapped into being her dad, not just any dad, I think. Yeah. Like that biological instinct, like snapped at that moment. Yeah. So Matthew's experience here is a little different, but just in their short few hours together, he's connected to Anne specifically and feels responsible for protecting, quote, that light in her eyes. First of all, poor baby Alice. Oh my goodness. And I'm so glad that she has such a wonderful champion in Steve and in you. And then I'm also just thinking about this quote. I'm thinking about poor Matthew, who's a farmer, for heaven's sake. Every single time he has to, you know, put a lamb or a calf to the slaughter. And he's like having, you know, um, these very sort of guilty feelings. So I know it just goes to show how gentle he is at heart, right? Yes, absolutely. And I was also thinking about this quote in terms of, I guess, Matthew's sense of responsibility you know, already he has this strong sense of responsibility toward Anne. And it made me think of like times in my life where I've observed an injustice or an unfairness and was just in a situation where there seemed like there was no one else to right the wrong. So the role of like the protector or the guardian in that moment falls on you. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I think sometimes sometimes you have to you have to be the person to fix the problem because there's no one else yes Um, if you don't do it who will exactly if you don't do it who will but you could also just walk away you could right and I think that is the interesting conundrum that the Cuthberts are in in the beginning of the story they could just walk away from Anne and throw up their hands and say it was all a big mistake But there's Matthew, and he sees that Anne is alone and friendless in the world, and that he is pretty much the only way to right the wrong of her lifetime of neglect and abuse. I just think similarly, as we discuss Marilla's sense of duty toward Anne, I think that Matthew is also guided here by this really strong internal moral sense. As we quoted earlier, the Cuthberts might be able to do some good for Anne. And to Matthew, that's enough reason to do it. Yeah, that's a powerful insight into Matthew, I think. Yeah. Anne immediately connects to Matthew as well. She picks up on his openness and acceptance of her, telling Marilla, he is so very sympathetic. He didn't mind how much I talked. He seemed to like it. Mm -hmm. I felt that he was a kindred spirit as soon as ever I saw him. As we've mentioned in the past, at first, it seems that Anne's bar for kindred spirit is kind of low. A little low. (laughs) A little low. But then we realized it's actually brilliant in its simplicity. Matthew is a kindred spirit because right away he accepts Anne for who she is and gives her the space to express herself without judgment. Yeah. Beyond that, Matthew also seems to intuitively understand what Anne needs. He tells Marilla early on, only be as good and kind to her as you can be. I kind of think she's one of the sort you can do anything with if only you get her to love you. Somehow Matthew knows that what Anne needs most of all is simply to love and be loved. And Matthew's able to do that for her. 
From the very beginning, they forge a tight bond. And as much as Anne needs to be loved, it seems that Matthew also needed someone to love. And then not only that, but Anne has so much love to give and Matthew gets to be the first recipient of that love. They create that special bond between a father and a child, really. And even though their relationship wasn't traditional, it clearly filled that kind of role in each of their lives. After the Cuthberts make the decision to keep Anne, ostensibly made by Marilla, but very much influenced by Matthew in his quiet refusal to agree with Marilla about the impracticality of keeping Anne, Matthew promises that Marilla has the charge of quote, bringing up Anne, and he promises not to stick his oar in to Marilla's methods. In a way, this frees Matthew to have a more uncomplicated relationship with Anne, more like a grandfather, perhaps. For many parents, the hard part of parenting is having to be the heavy to be the disciplinarian. It's freeing for Matthew to not have to worry about that part of parenting. He's free to love and indulge Anne. Anne is not in any danger of being spoiled by his indulgence either. She's been neglected and ignored most of her life. She's not going to become pampered or entitled from Matthew's handfuls of chocolate caramels. (laughs) Matthew even reflects later in the book, quote, Matthew thanked his stars many a time and oft that he had nothing to do with bringing her up. Mm -hmm. That was Marilla's exclusive duty. If it had been his, he would have been worried over frequent conflicts between inclination and said duty. As it was, he was free to spoil Anne, Marilla's phrasing, as much as he liked. But it was not such a bad arrangement after all. A little appreciation sometimes does quite as much good as all the conscientious bringing up in the world. Mm. I love that Matthew sort of instinctively understands needing the balance between you know, Marilla's moral rigidity and a little appreciation in the form of kind words and little gifts. Yes. Despite his promise not to interfere or stick his oar in, I love that expression. (laughs) I'm going to start using that anytime. Oh, please. Yeah. When Steve and I disagree about something around Alice, I think I'll tell him, I'll thank you not to stick your oar in. Or are you sticking your oar in? Yeah. So Matthew, you know, he does find those ways to more actively balance Marilla's rigidity. In the event of Anne's blow up with Mrs. Rachel Lind, Matthew is the one who ventures upstairs, an extreme rarity for him, a concrete example of how Matthew moves out of his comfort zone for Anne. In fact, if you think about it, he quite literally moves out of the physical space that he's most comfortable in, the ground floor where his room is and the closest proximity to the farm to the physical space that he rarely inhabits, the upstairs room, which are kind of the more feminine domestic domain where Marilla's room is. Matthew goes upstairs and he encourages Anne to apologize to Mrs. Rachel, not because Anne is wrong, but because Matthew misses Anne as she sits out her punishment. Anne readily agrees, and it's not hard to see why. Matthew may be the first person ever to miss Anne and tell her so. Knowing that she can admit to wrongdoing and still be loved and wanted and missed is almost certainly a new experience for Anne. And Matthew's love helps Anne through this first difficult moment, ending the standoff with Marilla and helping to cement Anne's place at Green Gables. Matthew and Anne's rapport is built on their very first basic encounter. Anne talking, Matthew listening. Yeah. Very quickly, we see that Anne's response to most events in her life is to run off to tell Matthew about it. Anne says, Matthew is such a sympathetic listener. In this way, Matthew's careful attention to Anne gives him a deep insight into her, and he can often reflect that back to Marilla when Marilla is frustrated with Anne. And Matthew's attention gives Anne something deeply important, the feeling of being valued. Yes. And I don't know about you, Kelly, but I often think about how as a kid, the adults in my life who deeply listened to me talk about my life and Mm. what was going on with me had so much influence on me. They made me feel important and interesting and loved. And I was lucky that I had lots of aunts and uncles in my life and family friends who gave me that kind of uncomplicated attention. And those were the people I loved the most and felt the closest to as I grew up. I see how easily you give my daughter that kind of focused attention and how much it means to her as well. She tells me all the time, Kelly's not just your friend, mom. (laughs) I love that. I feel the same way. (laughs) 
but no you're so right there really is something about that feeling of like a beloved and trusted adult taking you seriously when you're a kid the same as you I think really fondly of the adults in my life as a child who listened to me and asked sincere questions and engaged with my world and I think I really connect to Anne here because like her, I was a very imaginative child. Um, and I can remember telling anyone who would listen about the imaginary people and places in my head or walking them through the elaborate dramas taking place between my dolls, <laughs> which I, <laughs> I know sounds familiar to you with Alice and her horse figurines. Who yes. Would <laughs> who would have thought Such that one stable could have so much drama? So much drama. But those were the same adults who encouraged me to like write down stories and draw pictures and maps of the worlds in my head. And that was an important part of me growing up and believing that my capacity for storytelling was a talent and a strength and something I should cultivate. I mean, I think adults have this power to give children confidence by showing them what marvelous little beings they are. And Matthew does that for Anne in such a genuinely loving way. He really does. Marilla and Matthew rarely argue, and it's well understood that she makes a lot of the decisions in the household. But Marilla notes early on that it's rare that Matthew sets his mind to anything. So when he does, she feels obligated to heed it. Matthew doesn't wield his stubbornness often, picking and choosing those moments when it feels important to him. If Marilla's main concern with raising Anne is that Anne grow up to be moral and responsible, Matthew's main concern is that Anne is happy. Of course, these two things don't have to be at odds, and Matthew provides gentle correction to Marilla when her devotion to duty gets in her way of empathy for Anne. Anne tells Marilla, you didn't know just how I felt about it, but you see, Matthew did. Matthew understands me, and it's so nice to be understood, Marilla. But you also see like Marilla expressing some frustration with Matthew's passive stubbornness. At one point, she complains that she wishes that Matthew was like other men who would just talk it out when they had a disagreement, but instead he just gives her a look and she asks, what's to be done with a man who just looks? <laughs> I was mulling that passage over and I was thinking that I don't think it's that Matthew looks, I think he sees, I think he observes and he watches and he makes up his own mind and he sees Anne and Marilla together. And he sees the way that Anne changes the dynamic at Green Gables almost instantly. When Marilla returns from her visit with Mrs. Spencer, having not returned Anne as she intended, Matthew is out in the lane, watching and waiting. Marilla sees the relief in his face, and that's a reflection of her own feelings about the situation as well. Matthew's deep, unconditional love for Anne leaves its mark on him, just as it did with Marilla, because of course... Love given without expectation is such a profound experience. It can't help but change the giver as well as the recipient. Yeah. Just as Marilla went from responsibility and duty to love and open-heartedness with Anne, Matthew finds himself unfolding as well, from being withdrawn and reticent with the other Avonlea citizens to letting his warmth for Anne connect him more to his community and to push himself to step outside his comfort zone. As we saw, first he takes that kind of risk in his very own house to venture upstairs to help Anne, and then gradually with the rest of the town. I love this. I Yeah, I just love the idea of Matthew broadening his world through his relationship with Anne. Yeah. And another situation I'm thinking of is when the new minister comes to tea. Normally, Matthew would have fled from such a social situation, but instead, Anne is the person who convinces him to attend and soothes his nerves in such a way that he actively participates in the conversation. I mean, not with Mrs. Allen, the minister's wife, because that would be a bridge too far for Matthew's shyness. Let's not get crazy. Let's not get crazy. <laughs> but he <laughs> but he was there. Yeah. I mean, Anne, Anne has helped a lot, but she's not a miracle worker. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Anne's social life, I think, is a bit of a challenge for Matthew's anxiety around women and girls. And sometimes Anne's friends chattering in the kitchen with her leave him unable to come inside to relax until they leave. Oh, that makes me kind of laugh about... Matthew sort of hovering outside, <laughs> looking in and kind of- Are they gone? <laughs> yeah, like, when are they leaving? And it's so funny because we know they're just a bunch of harmless teenage girls, but as he's explained to us, there's a kind of mistrust there, um, yeah. you know, kind of unfairly earned. 
But despite this, Matthew is keenly observant where Anne is concerned. And he does notice that Anne's friends all have prettier dresses than she does. And so he resolves to get her a pretty dress for Christmas. This ends up being more of a challenge than Matthew bargains for. His expedition to buy Anne a dress is complicated by the female sales clerk at the store. Matthew's anxiety gets the better of him, and not only can he not bring himself to ask after a dress, he ends up buying 20 pounds of brown sugar and a garden rake in the middle of winter <laughs> because oh, he's Matthew. so tongue-tied. <laughs> but, you know, kudos to Matthew for daring such an adventure to fulfill Anne's dreams. And in the end, of course, he does get help from Mrs. Rachel, one of the few women whose familiarity makes him comfortable enough to speak. Matthew's courage is rewarded by Anne's joy in the new dress. I don't know. I feel like that's one of the loveliest moments as a parent when you get to make one of your children's dreams come true in some small way. It balances out the hard parts of parenting. I actually had kind of a little taste of that this Christmas. I mean, not that I don't do lots of things for Alice that she loves and appreciates, but this past Christmas, that's when Alice had really fallen hard into this new horse girl persona. She'd been longing for horseback riding lessons. She'd been talking about it a lot. So Steve and I decided that we would do that for her. We printed up a little gift certificate for lessons and we wrapped it up in a box with a little horse charm necklace for her. So cute. That was her last present of the day. Traditionally, that's her biggest present from us, the last one. Mm -hmm. And so it was so rewarding. We watched her face go from being slightly confused, maybe almost disappointed that her last present was just a necklace. And then seeing it change to disbelief when she opened and read the certificate. She was so happy. She started to cry. Oh, Alice. She's never <laughs> done that before. She just... She kept looking at us in disbelief and then hugging us and asking if it was for real, for real, and that she didn't believe she'd ever get lessons. Mm -hmm. Like Anne, when she opened the dress, Alice felt like she was in a happy dream. That was a really happy parenting moment for me. So I get Matthew. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That night after Matthew gives Anne the dress and experiences that wonderful, happy parenting moment. <laughs> Anne performs in the Christmas concert, and we learned that Marilla and Matthew haven't been to a community concert in over 20 years until that night. This is just another example of how Anne has pulled them into their own community. Yeah, and how isolated they have maybe made themselves. Right. Before Anne, Matthew didn't have a real reason to push through his shyness or dislike of crowds, but Anne is the reason he can. Anne gives Matthew a stake and a reason to want to connect with others. Matthew is deeply proud of Anne. Oh, he, yes. Oh, he thinks she's the smartest and prettiest girl on the island, and he doesn't hold back from telling her so. In fact, after that Christmas concert, he broaches the topic of furthering Anne's education with Marilla, pointing out that a girl as bright as Anne will benefit from education beyond a one-room schoolhouse. Matthew says, well now. I was proud of her and told her so before she went upstairs. We must see what we can do for some of these days, Marilla. I guess she'll need something more than Avonlea school by and by. There's something very fatherly in that praise, don't you think? I know my sister and I often joke that my dad thought we were the best at everything. And while that was a compliment, it was always maybe accompanied by a bit of fear that we would let him down by being ordinary. And of course we couldn't have, it was more just the way his love was expressed. It mm -hmm. was a way of making concrete that indescribable feeling of deep love. We felt extraordinary to him because he loved us. Mm. Dads are kind of the best in that way. I mean, my dad makes me absolutely crazy sometimes because his pride in us kids feels so out of proportion to our actual achievements. <laughs> I have to tell you, when I got a promotion at work recently, he started telling all of his friends that I was now running the agency that I work for. <laughs> it's like far from it, right? <laughs> but that did not stop. <laughs> that didn't stop him from telling all of them. And it didn't stop them from texting me their congratulations. <laughs> and, you know, especially as an adult, it is a little embarrassing, but it's still wonderful to feel that paternal pride. It makes you work that much harder to live up to that version of yourself that he sees. 
Kelly, I'm laughing so hard because I literally <laughs> had that exact same issue with my dad. Yes. I, would, I would tell him about a new responsibility at work, maybe a small promotion type thing. Right. And by the time he had told my aunts or my grandmother about it, it would have turned into this like huge deal that like right. I was assistant director or something. <laughs> I had, I also had a few embarrassing things where I'd be like, no, no, that's not, no, that's not it. Dial it back, dial it back. Yeah. (laughs) My sister always jokes that um, there was one year she was playing soccer with a pretty competitive like adult team and was going to be at a tournament where sometimes they scout for the Olympics. Oh, wow. And yeah, she knew that she was not going to be scouted for the Olympics. But I swear to you, my dad already was talking about buying tickets to Greece because that's where the next (laughs) Olympics would have been at that time. And she was like, no, dad, don't, don't buy tickets. He was so sure that of course she would be chosen to be on the Olympic soccer team. He had like gold medal dreams. I love Uh it. (laughs) He used to, he used to make copies of our awards or certificates from school to take to work, to show his coworkers. Stop. No, my gosh. Uh, I'm pretty sure if Matthew had access to that type of technology, he also would have done the same for Anne's certificates. Oh, absolutely. He would have. Oh, and he would have brought them all to the store and, you know. (laughs) Oh, I can totally see it where he's like shyly sharing that with the uh, other farmers as they buy their hayseed. Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. So Anne has that same experience as the two of us with fatherly pride. Mm Mm-hmm. Anne is nervous for the queen's entrance exam results, not just for herself, but because, quote, she wanted to pass high for the sake of Matthew and Marilla, especially Matthew. Matthew had declared to her his conviction that she would beat the whole island. That, Anne felt, was something that it would be foolish to hope for, even in the wildest dreams. But she did hope fervently that she would be among the first 10 at least, so that she might see Matthew's kindly brown eyes gleam with pride in her achievement that she felt would be a sweet reward indeed for all her hard work. And when Anne does tie for first in the results, the very first thing she must do is run to tell Matthew about it. I mean, can we talk about how Matthew was right? He he was was right. right. He knows how special she is. He knows how much she's bringing to the table. And I think Anne is gaining confidence in herself at this point in the book. But Matthew really sees her. Yeah, he does. And maybe less like our fathers. <laughs> he, he, he is right that she is yeah. the best in the whole island. Well, apparently, yeah. So as we know, Anne is very bright and intelligent and a dedicated scholar. So as she grows up, she continues to earn more opportunities for Matthew to feel that deep sense of pride. When Anne is invited to recite at the White Sands concert, Maud tells us that Matthew was in the seventh heaven of gratified pride over the honor conferred on his Anne. That pride has to do with being so happy that so many people can now see how special Anne is, something that Matthew knew before anyone else. To celebrate Anne's achievement, Matthew gives her a string of pearl beads to wear. Knowing how much he struggled to buy a dress for Anne only a few years before, you can imagine how hard it must have been for him to buy such a feminine thing for Anne. Although Maud does tell us that by now, Matthew has gotten more practice at buying gifts for Anne, often bringing her pretty treasures like fashionable hats since the first botched purchase of that puff sleeve dress. In fact, Marilla says now he just buys things for Anne regardless, and the clerks at Carmody know they can palm anything off on him. Just tell him a thing is pretty and fashionable, and Matthew plunks his money down for it. (laughs) I love that. This is kind of what I have in my head about him him telling the clerks at Carmody about all of her achievements and they're all like oh she needs a new hat she needs right. some gloves <laughs> right exactly oh first in her class she really needs a smart new coat yep <laughs> it's like this is a good book bag for school <laughs> those clerks know exactly what they're doing <laughs> but it's just another way of showing how dramatically Matthew's comfort zone has increased since Anne came into his life yes And Reagan, I have to say, this also made me think of my favorite of the five love languages, gifts. Gifts. Okay, so quick background for anyone listening who might not know about the five love languages. 
This is a book by Gary Chapman, and Chapman's premise is that we express and receive love in five different ways. Each person has a preferred love language, and connecting to a partner requires knowing how to speak their love language. So the five love languages are acts of service, words of affirmation, physical touch, quality time, and my favorite, gifts. (laughs) Kelly, gifts may be your preferred love language, and part of it is you are an excellent gift giver as well. Oh, thank you. I like to give and receive love with gifts. Um, But it's much to my very practical husband's chagrin. Uh, (laughs) I think that what I like about gifts is that I feel really loved when the people who love me see something out in their world that they know would make me happy. And it could be like a funny meme or TikTok video or flowers or like Anne, a fashionable hat or precious jewelry. (laughs) (laughs) But it's really, it's not about spending money for me. It's rather that experience of feeling like, you know, the people who love me are carrying me with them throughout the day. And when they see these sort of things, that's kind of their way of finding to connect with me. Yes. It's a way of making concrete that expression of noticing you throughout the day, right? Yeah. No, I think that's a good way of putting it. And I feel a little prickly about this sometimes because I feel like the gift love language is the one that people most malign. Like right. like understand. it's shallow or yeah, like it's shallow. Yeah. And I to me it's really not. It just is that sense of like carrying the person you love through with you. So if I am you know, I don't know if I'm at work and I see something and I'm like, oh, that made me think of Reagan. I mean, I literally have like a little spreadsheet that I keep on my phone. You're lying. <laughs> I write that stuff down. I'm not lying. I'll show it to you sometime. <laughs> and I keep it for, you know, those like things that I see that make me think of the people that I love. Yeah. Well, you are definitely the queen of sending me TikToks that you think of me, but you also are so good at friend homework at this point. Yes. Yes. <laughs> You're also very good at the little gifts. In fact, for listeners, my birthday was this past weekend. And one of the things Kelly got me was this little plaque, um, a little artistic plaque, and it's of a crow because she knows how much I love feeding the crows in my neighborhood and my deep desire to become a witch with a murder of crows at my disposal. I feel like you're really underselling this. Reagan spent most of the pandemic lockdown (laughs) trying to befriend the crows in her neighborhood by laying out food for them in the hopes that they would bring her gifts. I mean, it was a whole, it was a full tilt effort to befriend the crows. Yes. I, they never brought me gifts, but I did get up to like eight crows that were regulars. She probably had names for them. (laughs) No, I, I never could tell them apart. We did name the squirrel though. Okay, so Reagan, tell me, what are your thoughts on the love languages? Okay, so I think that w- this was a good thing to bring up. I definitely think it's interesting because you can compare Marilla and Matthew here that Marilla's mm-hmm. main love language is definitely acts of service. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, and which makes sense for her and the way that she moves throughout the world. And she even says, right, she can't say what she feels. And Matthew is gifts and words of affirmation, which is a bit of a surprise for such a quiet man. He's free with his praise of Anne. Yes, he's free with his praise of Anne. And the gifts, like we just were discussing, are a concrete way to show how much he values Anne. And Anne is so easy to please because she loves beautiful and pretty things. I think Anne is a genius at receiving love, however it is offered. She Mm. sees the love in the things that Matthew buys her and in all the ways that Marilla acts in service for her. Oh, I love that point, Reagan. I really do. And it's just, again, thinking about Anne is just sort of a vessel for Matthew and Marilla's love. However, they're able to give it to her. Yeah. For Anne herself, she's definitely a words of affirmation kind of girl in expressing Mm -hmm. her love. (laughs) She can spout poetry and wax rhapsodic at the drop of a hat. But I also think she shows her love and physical touch. Yes. Yeah. There are a lot of passages where we see her impulsively kiss and hug Marilla, much to her surprise. When Marilla expresses sadness that Anne is growing up and literally climbs right in her lap to reassure her that she's still their little Anne. Neither Matthew or Marilla is good at expressing love in that way. Matthew often confines himself to patting her hand or shoulder, but that doesn't stop Anne. 
And I think it's really sweet when Matthew does like put a hand on her shoulder or something like that, right? Like he is trying to speak her language. He sees how effusive she is in her affection and wants yes, to give that back to her in a way she'll understand. He reaches out to her in that way. For myself, I'm definitely a bit of gifts, love language like you. Mm-hmm. Um, I like buying gifts for other people. I like when other people give me little things that seem very specific to me. Yeah, you're a very thoughtful gift giver too. Well, I thank you. I'll tell you one of the best gifts I've gotten because my husband has not always been the best gift giver, but for my husbands are just too practical for it. You know what Maybe. I mean? Like they try, but I just think that they both have a little bit of a block in terms of just like, sometimes a thing is nice for its own sake. Whereas right. for them, like they're, everything has to have like a use or a higher meaning or something. I don't yeah. Know. Your husband, Chuck, is more than that than Steve, I think. Uh, but Steve, I think, yeah, it's just taken him a little bit to really tune in, I think, on those things. So mm-hmm. for Mother's Day this year, do you know what he got me? Oh, remind me. He got me a metal chicken. Which oh, that's right. This was does, the best gift. This was this the best, the best gift. gift. So good. Okay, this is such a good gift. to back up and give context to the listeners because this really okay. was like such a score. Steve, if you're listening, this was great. This was the best gift. Here's why. I he, might have texted him after you told me. That did you? Did and you? I might have been like, Steve, you hit it out of the park. This was such a good one. Okay. So way back in earlier internet days, yeah. there was a blog post by a blogger called The Blog S, Jenny Lawson. And I believe it's called, And That's Why You Should Learn to Pick Your Battles. It truly is one of the funniest blog posts in like the history of the internet. And here's the funniest thing about it is that any woman that I have shared this with has reacted like me, hysterical laughter, crying, tears running down your face, not being able to breathe. You're laughing so hard. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the men that I have shared it with have been like, that was cute. That was fun. The essential point of the, this story, and I'm not going to do it justice, go Google the blog S and that's why you should pick your battles revolves around her buying an enormous six foot tall metal chicken at a home goods store and leaving it in front of her doorstep and then knocking on the door and running away. So when her husband opened the door, there was this enormous metal chicken. (laughs) It's like, I've read this a hundred times and it's still the funniest thing to me. It always makes me laugh out loud. Yeah. And so we had recently been reminded of it because when we were kind of out and about, we were we found some sort of like touristy trap place and they had these big metal chickens and I had to stop and take my picture with it. Mm-hmm. And then he got me a miniature metal chicken for my shelf. So I good. died. Such a good gift. So those are the kind of things that really like things are nice, but little things that really say, I know you, that's one of those things that really makes me feel seen. I know you, I know what makes you laugh. I know, you know, what is going to make you smile every time. Yeah, no, that's yeah. the best. And I th- also think as I've gotten older, and I don't know whether this is the result of being an adult or being a mom, but a newer love language for me is definitely acts of service. So somebody running an errand, particularly my husband, but not always, could be other people, running an errand for me or spontaneously doing one of my chores for me makes me feel loved and seen. Mm -hmm. And I really think that's what love languages are. It's someone noticing you and what you need in a moment. And that could be praise or help or something pretty or a big metal chicken. Uh, Yeah. I think everyone's love language is a big metal chicken. I mean, right? (laughs) The acts of service one, Reagan, is interesting to me because it's not one of my love languages, but it definitely is one of my husband's. And so I've been trying to kind of find ways to do that in so that way, you know, he will feel loved. And so one of the things that I did for him recently is I filled up his car with gas. Like we were switching our cars or whatever in the driveway. And I just sort of took his car and filled it up with gas. Like it wasn't that big a deal. I mean, gas is expensive right now. So it actually was very nice of me. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, I'm sure it's coming out of the same account. But... Okay, got details, details. Oh, details. <laughs> but at any rate, right. When we were moving cars, like I saw that his tank was low. And so I went and filled it up when I brought it back. I didn't say anything. And a few days later, he looks at me. He's literally like misty eyed. And he's like, did you fill up my gas tank for me? 
And I was like, oh yeah, I had forgotten about it at this point. And he's like, that is the nicest thing you've ever done. And I was like, oh my goodness. So, you know. Yeah, acts of service for Chuck. 15 and years of a marriage later, we're finally figuring this one out. <laughs> that's okay. Well, you know, I think, okay, I'll give you this tidbit and you can take it for what it's worth for understanding Chuck. It's that feeling of being taken care of. Yeah. It is hard work being an adult and being responsible all the time. It is. And so somebody just doing a little thing to take care of you feels so nice. Like when I come out, if, if I've had a really long day and I've got baskets of laundry kind of waiting for me and I come out in the living room and my husband is folding a basket of laundry without me he will always help if I ask, but it's that the doing it without my asking for help, just noticing, oh, wow, Reagan's been doing a lot. She's probably really tired. Let me do this thing for her. Just, it makes me feel very taken care of. Yeah. And I think that our relationship dynamic is very much one in which he does a lot of caretaking for me um, while I sort of like sit around and eat bonbons. So when- <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that's not true. So when, yeah, when, when we do kind of have that role reversal, you can tell he really appreciates it. Yeah. Well, there you go. Well, that was quite the diversion. So we will bring it back here to Anne and Matthew. Yeah. As Anne prepares to go to Queens, Matthew thinks to himself, well, now I guess she ain't been much spoiled. I guess my putting in my oar occasional never did much harm after all. She's smart and pretty and loving too, which is better than all the rest. She's been a blessing to us. And there never was a luckier mistake than what Mrs. Spencer made, if it was luck. I don't believe it was any such thing. It was Providence, because the Almighty saw we needed her, I reckon. It's a true declaration of unconditional love and, even better, Anne knows that Matthew feels this way. That knowledge of Matthew's love will buoy Anne against the grief of Matthew's death. Just as Anne is preparing to go to Redmond College, riding high on the accomplishment of winning the Avery Scholarship, Matthew dies rather abruptly. In their last real exchange in the book, Anne wishes that she could have been the boy they sent for so she could help Matthew now that he's getting older and having heart trouble. Matthew tells her frankly, well now, I'd rather have you than a dozen boys, Anne. Just mind you that, rather than a dozen boys, well now. I guess it wasn't the boy that took the Avery scholarship, was it? It was a girl, my girl, my girl that I'm proud of. Ugh, Matthew, breaking my heart. I know. Matthew dies the very next morning, suddenly of a heart attack. Mm. His quiet presence left a cavernous ache in Anne and Marilla. Although Anne had a life full of loss before Green Gables, she hadn't been able to miss what she hadn't ever known. Her imagination was almost enough to fill those gaps because she didn't have anything real to compare it to. But Matthew's death leaves a very real hole in Anne's life. His compassion and love and steady presence in Anne's life has been something very real and present for Anne in her last five years. This loss cannot be imagined away. Anne has to grapple with the very real contradiction of continuing to live while mourning his death. It often feels disloyal after someone we love dies to enjoy life, and Anne struggles with this very thing. It seems like disloyalty to Matthew somehow to find pleasure in these things now that he is gone, she said wistfully to Mrs. Allen one evening when they were together in the manse garden. I miss him so much all the time, and yet, Mrs. Allen, the world and life seem very beautiful and interesting to me for all. Mrs. Allen reassures Anne that Matthew loved how Anne laughed and enjoyed life, and he would like to know that she continued to do so. That's the work of grief, to hold the loss in our hearts while continuing to live and grow. Matthew's love has been a constant in Anne's life over the previous five years. It has provided proof that she is lovable and valuable when she was given the opposite message for much of her early life. His death is a terrible loss for her, but the love he gave her is an ongoing gift that will never run out. Kelly, are you crying? We love you, Matthew. I know. <laughs> okay. So 
pulling ourselves back together, I'm going to take us down the birch path to talk about fatherhood and childhood in the context of Anne of Green Gables. We originally thought that we'd want to discuss kind of a Victorian and Edwardian era fatherhood here, but I have to say, even doing a little research into this topic showed me that there really is not a lot of solid proof that all fathers from this time were the same or even had similar values. And I also sort of realized that, you know, it would require a lot more research, time, and space to discuss all the different ways that culture and nationality and class and religion and race and immigration would have impacted Victorian era fatherhood. Reagan and I definitely had a lot of assumptions about fatherhood in the Victorian and Edwardian eras. We believed that that role of late 19th and early 20th century father was to be absent, or if he was present, he was a stern disciplinarian. However, some research on this topic proved otherwise. I guess I shouldn't be surprised, but it turns out there's not much proof that fathers at this time were any less affectionate or any less involved in parenting than they may have been at other historical time periods. Huh. In 2015, Dr. Julie Marie Strange from the University of Manchester published this book on the Victorian father, and she based her research on music hall songs, visual culture, and fiction. And then she found that Victorian fathers are often depicted in the home with their children, caring for them, laughing with them, at rest, at play. Dr. Strange specifically stated, the term Victorian father has become shorthand for a man that is strict, distant, and unaffectionate with his children. This shows how firmly the stereotype is imprinted in our culture, but I found little evidence of this austere absent man in my research. So Reagan and I definitely fell into that common misconception. Um, for sure. And we were all ready to talk about how Matthew disproves that concept by being so involved in Anne's life and by genuinely and openly caring for her, only to realize that we're just relying on this stereotype without any truth to it. So lesson learned about that. And in fact, Dr. Strange found that the concept of the Victorian father as absent is largely a late 20th century invention. One of the things she noted that I thought was really interesting is that, you know, because in sort of Lucy Maud Montgomery's time, people lived in smaller and more tightly knit communities generally, and men then worked closer to home. So fathers were truly present throughout the day in a way that like a 20th century commuter dad would not be. And oh. Yeah, that makes sense. And we see this in Anne of Green Gables. We see that physical proximity um, between Matthew and Anne. You know, Matthew is farming the family land during the day. And so he's coming home for lunch and tea and supper. We see Anne getting his tea ready and, you know, that they are having this time in the middle of the day to connect. He would have been someone that she saw throughout the day. It's not just sort of like first thing in the morning and in the evening for dinner. Sure. She often runs off to tell him wherever he is on the farm, when she gets home or something happens, she can run off and tell him right then. Yeah, she can just go find him. So their relationship is one where they're touching base constantly. Compare that to our dads who were working in offices all day. Yeah, my dad left to beat the rush in the into DC, oh, like sure. the traffic. He left before we were up. So he left, you know, probably 5.30 or 6 in the morning, and then he was home at 6.30 or 7 at night for dinner, but still. Yeah, so you were only seeing him in those couple hours before he went to bed, and I think that's a lot more common in the 20th century. And yeah. in Anne's time, everyone was around, and those relationships were a lot closer. That makes sense. So since fathers and fatherhood were by no means homogenous, it's safe to say that Matthew became exactly the kind of father figure that he was best able to be, and that happened to be someone who provided Anne the love and care she needed. However, this era was a very interesting time to be a child. In the late 19th and early 20th century, childhood was becoming recognized as its own phase of life. Culturally in the West, we were coming to understand that children were children and not just tiny adults. As the industrial and urban revolution began and children began working in factories, social reformers worked to protect children from physical harm and what they perceived to be moral corruption. There was a lot of change at this time, from social movements and new laws limiting child labor and criminalizing child abuse to art and literature centering children at play and depicting childhood as a time of innocence and dependence on loving and protecting caregivers. 
specifically in the Canadian Maritimes, where Anne of Green Gables is, of course, set, child labor was very much a fact of life. Children worked in processing fish, in textile mills, in manufacturing houses, farming, and they worked in domestic service like Anne did. Many children would have even gone to sea and worked on merchant ships or naval vessels. In other parts of Canada and the United States, children often worked long, dangerous, and terrifying hours coal mining. Children from moderately well-off families might not have worked until their early teens, but children from poorer families would have begun to work as soon as possible to support their households. And in Canada, there were no legal protections for children over the age of seven at work, and school attendance wasn't compulsory. That's wild when you think about a seven or eight-year-old working. Seven or eight-year-olds were treated as adults in the workforce for most of this time, which I think is such a bananas thing to wrap our minds around now. It's like they didn't have the same concept of children in childhood that we do now. It was all changing at this time. Yeah. I mean, we see that right in here with Anne in her early history. She was raising other people's children before the age of 11. Right. And you and I had talked about this on this podcast where we're just like, okay, what good really is a six, seven or eight year old in helping to raise three and four year olds? But it's a fact of life at the time. Yeah. At any rate, social reformers eventually brought about labor legislation that restricted the employment of children. And by the beginning of the 20th century, most Canadian provinces had child labor laws and were in the process of requiring school attendance. So this really was that time of that big shift. Yeah. And what I think is most interesting for our discussion is that the artists and writers of this era contributed vitally to the movement for greater protections for children. Victorian art and literature often romanticized childhood as this time of innocence, education, and greater connection to the natural world and to God. Children were depicted as angelic without sin and as a force for good. Literature was a loud voice in the call to reform laws protecting children from everything from Charles Dickinson's lovable but vulnerable Oliver Twist to Elizabeth Barrett Browning's 1844 poem, The Cry of the Children. Hmm. I think that Maud was really a part of this literary movement. In Anne of Green Gables, we see that Anne's childhood clearly represents that cultural movement from the child as laborer to the child as someone who is innocent and dependent on the goodwill of others. In Anne's history, first we see her as a nanny. She's caring for young children. She's living in these very precarious circumstances and living this very sad sort of solitary little life apart from the people who have taken her in. But then after the Cuthberts adopt her, she becomes a child who is free to play and make friends and be outdoors in fresh air. So we see that move from like tiny adult and laborer to having a childhood. And and we see, of course, that Anne does have schoolwork and her religious studies and household chores, but she also has picnics and parties and holidays. And she's also not responsible for anyone else. And in fact, it is very much Matthew and Marilla's role to provide for her and protect her and guide her. Anne's vivid imagination and her appreciation for the natural world also fall right in line with that Victorian perception of childhood as this time when children were closer to this ideal state of purity and connection to the natural world. Oh, that's so interesting. And you're right. Anne's journey is very much that cultural journey. Right. I think think it's so interesting. And then, of course, as the culture shifted and began to recognize childhood, literature specifically for children became so much more common. Alice's Adventures in Wonderland by Lewis Carroll, which mixes fantasy and reality, adventure and whimsy, is a great example of a Victorian era book written specifically for children. And then, of course, there were authors like E. Nesbitt and Francis Hodgson Burnett, Robert Louis Stevenson, Rudyard Kipling, L. Frank Baum, Louisa May Alcott, and of course, yes, Maud herself, who were all part of this new tradition of literature that celebrated children and childhood as a time apart from adulthood, a time of innocence, proximity to nature, and education and play. Wow, that was really interesting, Kelly. I didn't know a lot about that. I think it's interesting to think of Anne of Green Gables as a part of this movement, right? And Maud in her own way as a call for social reform and for childhood being childhood and for children to be safe. Because Anne's story really is a celebration of Anne having a childhood. All Mm -hmm. of the adventures she have are childish. Exactly. 
yeah, they're innocent, they're silly, and they're low stakes as they should be at her age, right? Yes. And she's able to learn and grow in an environment that's safe and where she's protected. And it stands in such stark contrast to what she had earlier. Yes. Well, let's now put on our puffiest puffed sleeves and revel in a few of our favorite moments about Matthew. I'll go first. So I always laugh about a line right in Anne's very first encounter with Matthew. They are on the way home from the train station and she is waxing on about the thrill she gets from seeing something beautiful. In this case, her first glimpse of the Lake of Shining Waters. And she asks Matthew if he ever experienced a thrill like that. He responds, well, now, yes, it always gives me kind of a thrill to see them ugly white grubs that spade up in the cucumber beds. I hate the look of them. <laughs> I know. Matthew is doing his best to understand Anne, but they are coming from very different places here. And that's okay. That's okay. She's talking about the Lake of Shining Waters and he's like, well, it is kind of thrilling to spade up some grubs, which are pretty gross. I mean, never having done that, maybe it is very thrilling. Right. It's it's thrill in a different kind of way. Yeah. (laughs) And that's okay. It doesn't get in the way of their connection, but it is a very funny moment. This contrast between a fanciful, poetic child and a man who is the very definition of the salt of the earth. Oh, yes. Okay. So I have to say that my favorite Matthew moment is actually a quote that I carry deep in my heart. There's this kind of lovely little coda after Anne's ill-fated portrayal of the Lady Elaine in the sinking barge on Barry's Pond. And Anne, she resolutely tells Marilla that from now on, she's going to be sensible. And Marilla, of course, is justly skeptical. But she says that she hopes to see an improvement in Anne's romantic imagination getting the better of her. But then after Marilla leaves the room, Matthew puts his hand on Anne's shoulder and says, don't give up all your romance, Anne. A little of it is a good thing. Not not too much, of course, but keep a little of it, Anne. Keep a little of it. That's beautiful. He saw her for exactly who she was and didn't think yeah. she needed to change a thing. Yes. And also he sees how much romance and imagination is important to her and makes yeah. her who she is and loves that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a beautiful moment. Well, We want to end this episode with our inspired by section. And of course, today we are inspired by Matthew. So Matthew and our discussion about proud fathers, of course, makes me think about my own dad. My dad died about two years ago. And one of the gifts he gave me was introducing me to another of my lifetime favorite books, All Creatures Great and Small by James Harriet. Yeah. It's about a rural vet in Scotland and the gentle masculinity of James Harriet is quite reminiscent of Matthew. Not to mention, I think Matthew would enjoy many of the lovely descriptions of farm life. Yeah, he definitely would. Yeah. It's episodic and funny and nostalgic, and I highly recommend picking it up if you've never read it before. I haven't read that one before, and you've recommended it to me several times, and this is definitely a reminder to to get to it. Oh, Kelly, you have to read it. You will love it. So for my Inspired by Matthew, I am going to recommend the 1999 David Lynch film, The Straight Story, which stars Richard Farnsworth. Don't let the fact that it's a David Lynch film scare you off. (laughs) You'll remember, of course, that Farnsworth played Matthew in the CBC adaptation of Anne of Green Gables from the 80s, um, which we love. (laughs) We do love. And then in the film, The Straight Story, Farnsworth plays an elderly farmer, sound familiar? who travels from Wisconsin to Iowa on a lawnmower. (laughs) I know, isn't that great? I've never seen this movie. Oh, Reagan, it's so good. And I think it might be based on a true story. Um, I would have to double check, but I think so. So anyway, he's, he's on this old John Deere lawnmower, which has a top speed of about five miles per hour. And his character drove it over 200 miles to visit his brother, also elderly, who had recently suffered a stroke. The movie is slow and sweet, but it is visually stunning. And Farnsworth gives this incredibly powerful and emotional performance despite very few lines of dialogue. It's absolutely beautiful. And I think it is just perfect for fans of Matthew. Oh, all right. Well, I will put it on my list. (laughs) Well, from both of us in Matthew's honor, 
Our last inspired by is that we suggest you make a concrete effort to tell someone directly how proud you are of them. Don't hide your love or admiration. Tell someone who needs to hear it how much you care about them. If Matthew can step outside his comfort zone, so can you. Yes, adopt some of Matthew's courage. He went to tea with the minister. You can exactly. tell your friends, your children, your parents, your siblings that you're proud of them. Thank you all so much for listening. I hope you will please consider subscribing to Kindred Spirits Book Club on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice and leaving us a review so that other Kindred Spirits can find us. Next time on Kindred Spirits Book Club, we are going to be talking about Mr. Phillips, Miss Stacy, and the Avonlea School. 